Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community, as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Jonathan McIntosh is a really interesting educator. He's spent a career dedicated to public schooling in New York. He's currently the chief academic officer of the Prospect Schools. He has really interesting things to say about identity, about voice, about academic excellence, about the role of public schooling in our times. We're really excited to have him here with us today. Let's go. Well, good morning, Phil. It's wonderful to be with you. And uh, I hope things are going well in beautiful Fitzroy there and that you've had your almond latte this morning. Yes, <laughs> and I've, I've had my avocado toast as well, too. And I'm looking at a bowl of quinoa fairly avariciously at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> oh, these hipsters, I just can't cope, Jonathan. Anyway, welcome, Jonathan. Delicious. You. You're, you're currently in uh, my favourite city in the world, apart from, of course, beautiful, glorious Melbourne. Uh, and so welcome. And so I'm going to launch straight into our very first question. And that is a simple one. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today? No, I really appreciate that. Thank you, Adriano. Thank you, Phil. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. You know, I think that my story starts, you know, in South Asia in Indonesia. So I was born in South Sumatra, Indonesia, and I was adopted. My Both of my parents are American. Uh, they're from... One's from a small town outside of St. Louis called St. Louis, Missouri called St. James. And my mom is from Texas. And my father was a research scientist who was working on helping indigenous farmers help scale crop systems through sustainable agriculture all over Asia. And they lived in Asia for t- over 20 years. And they worked for an organization called the International Rice Research Institute. So much of this frames like the backdrop to the formative experience to, that leads to like where I am today. So I spent almost all of my formative years in Indonesia, in the Philippines, in Dhaka, Bangladesh, uh, getting to really see what an international perspective on education uh, really looks like and feels like, um, even though that I didn't know it at the time, right? You know, it was one of those just like really amazingly privileged moments where I would get to see my father communicating these educational principles to the very actions that he was doing, whether it be going into uh, different farming communities and small rural communities and like helping them and wading through the rice paddies and like really thinking about like, how do I help teach this group of individuals what it means to increase their crop yields? How do they feed feed their people? And you know, all of that juxtaposed against uh, our, his retirement, which he wanted me to come back to the United States and be able to have an experience in the American school system. So uh, I attended high school uh, in this small town, St. James, Missouri. And, you know, I think that that was like really, like a really key inflection point in my life. Uh, you know, I, I was in this very, very homogenous setting. Uh, it was white rural America. 
I was an adopted individual from South Asia who really, you know, didn't have like a space or a place that oftentimes I felt within the community and, and largely in schooling. Um, you know, I was fortunate that I had really great friends and my parents really supported me during that time period. But that kind of like framed like this dissonance that occurred um, in my youth that really propelled like my career in education because I, I revisited the, that experience oftentimes, right? To, to come into that type of a setting and to say, hey, this isn't how I remember education to be. This doesn't feel exactly right. I feel a little bit disconnected. What's missing? And, you know, that really like pro propelled like my movement into like the education sector and specifically like how do we recreate qualitative and also qualitative experiences for uh, students that really humanize their educational experience that give them a broader perspective of globalization that really draws on the diversity that like that you know many of us have grown up with uh and and how do we like operationalize that into educational practice so uh that kind of like propelled me into the into education and in my current career so that launches into my next question for you. And, and thank you very much for sharing a, a very deeply personal story and, and journey so far that you've encountered. So my question then relates to this idea of student identity, voice and agency. Can you talk a little bit about mm -hmm. why those things are important, not only to you, but particularly important in a contemporary schooling setting? Yeah, you know, I think that the it's a really interesting question, Adriano. I, I think that, you know, we're at this moment, in society where you know we've seen this mass wave of populism and identity politics sweep across the globe and i think everybody is looking for what does my voice mean within like this larger noise and this narrative and how do i authentically project my identity to others in in, in the space while at the same time recognize that like that voice and that perspective is one of many and, and a diverse array of voices. Uh, you know, I think that like voice and identity are, are particularly important in, in the school setting because it, it's about empowering that uh, generation of learners that uh, really is thinking about uh, not just how to solve problems, right? It, it's like how to communicate with one another, how to collaborate, how to work with an ethic of care uh, throughout any type of community building that they're engaged in. So like voice and identity become like integral intertwined components of uh, how you project or, or, you know, you advance that project of like cosmopolitanism, um, global citizenry and, and civic discourse. If I'm a history teacher, Jonathan, and, and once, once upon a time I was when I still worked honorably for a living, <laughs> but if, if I'm a history teacher, what that means to me, I think, is that I'm not just teaching the stuff of history. I'm trying to teach about a narrative of yesterday, today, and tomorrow, so I can help students to locate their narratives within that and work out what their voice is going forward. How, how do you work with the teachers across prospect schools around these sorts of concepts? How do you help them step out of the stuff of school into the stuff that's really important? Yeah, I think that, you know, Phil, it's, it's a challenge that we're always reflecting on, right? It's, it's something that, um, you know, I think really asks people to remove themselves from, uh, you know, what their normal is, or maybe even to unlearn like uh, patterns or behaviors or mindsets that they've had in the past, right? 
And what we do specifically is that we, we do believe in very, very clear structured ways to uh, advance this type of pedagogy and vision within our organization. For example, uh, we believe that like diversity is a, at the core of our mission and, and we're a school that um, believes implicitly and explicitly in the power of a diverse student body that really represents the communities that our schools are serving. In New York City, uh, particularly where our two uh, you know, we have uh, four schools across the city and we're in the process of growing and, and expanding. We have uh, two major districts that we serve, uh, Community District uh, 13 and Community District 15. Uh, these are considered from most of the recent reports uh, in New York City as some of the most uh, demographically segregated school districts in all of New York City. And they're here right here in Brooklyn. And whenever we're looking for structured opportunities to help uh, teachers unpack what it means to serve a diverse student community. Uh, we do believe in, in things like the structured moments and professional development sequences. Uh, we have a partnership with the, for example, the, the Center of Racial Justice and Equity, uh, formerly known as Border Crossers, that comes into our schools, that works with our leadership, works with our teachers and educators on, and faculty on how to unpack privilege uh, with the context of a diverse setting. Uh, further, you know, we have other types of, of, of structured moments and priorities that we annualize each year uh, that really map out what does the professional training look like for our educators? What are the types of experiences that we're going to emphasize over the course of the year, whether it be through social emotional learning moments, uh, whether it be through uh, teacher-led discourse in classrooms, uh, all of these different types of practices and pedagogy that's carefully mapped out uh, in conjunction with the school leaders and principals and department heads at the schools to really make sure that it's not just something that we're portending or presenting, it's like something that's actualized and lived in our culture through our, our development and it comes alive um, in spaces with students. Jonathan, thank you for that. You, you, you mentioned um, structure there and you've had, you've had a really interesting career in in and of itself and, and within prospects you've been a head of school you've been a head of middle school you've even been a professor of debate and argument which our producer oliver would love because he would love to get a career <laughs> in debate and argument he's a <laughs> he's a university level debater you spent some, yeah you spent some time in the kip schools tell us what you brought yeah. from that experience of the kip schools because they're they're right out there in terms of their dedication towards both character yeah. and character. Thanks for bringing up the, the KIPP experience. And, and for your listeners who aren't, aren't familiar with what the, the KIPP uh, public, uh, charter school structure is, is that they are uh, one of the, considered one of like the first large uh, charter national networks uh, that grew out of the charter movement in the United States. And something that they like was deeply part of their mission was uh, that they wanted to really target underrepresented uh, communities um, through like a combination of like high expectations and routines and structure and extra learning time uh, to really move the needle forward in terms of closing that achievement gap. You know, I, I, for all of the, uh, the the different articles that you read out there about them, you know, they've evolved immensely over time. And I think that one of the greatest lessons that I learned from my experience with from KIPP was the power of really understanding, trusting, and building relationships with your communities, and also to provide those spaces for 
leader autonomy uh, within the, the leading and running and operating of schools. So one of their big pillars is this notion of uh, the power to lead, right? And that school leaders uh, really have the ability to really make decisions that inform the best needs of their community and they get to cut through a lot of the bureaucracy that sometimes blockades like innovation. So I think that those two elements combined together were two critical moments that really like uh, gave me a, a deep understanding that, the, that even though that I may not ultimately agree with some of the philosophy in terms of implementation of their programming, and it definitely has changed over, over the past years, that the, the high level of planning, the thoughtfulness, the care, the relationship building, and uh, their administrative frame, framework were like things that I, I admire deeply uh, about their organization and particularly their mission, like to serve underrepresented communities, I think is one that is a really, really important in, in our current climate. Jonathan, the, the Prospect Schools uh, featured as an exemplar in the World Economic Forum's Schools of the Future platform for defining new models of education for this kind of fourth industrial revolution. So that's a great kind of uh, kudos to you guys and, and the work that you've been doing in, in the community that you continue to serve. Can you share with our listeners then a little bit about what does success actually mean for your students? How do you then measure that success? You know, this is a question that we're always asking ourselves. Yeah, I and mean, we were deeply uh, humbled and honored to receive that honor from the World Economic Forum. You know, I think that there's a number of stakeholders and it's a community of people that are really working to actualize it on a daily level. Um, you know, I think that, you know, what it really uh, looks like in terms of success for our students is, is that uh, building like this model that uh, tries to find like the best of both worlds from a more of like a classics liberal arts education and also the tensions of like uh, a highly competitive narrative of education that seems to propagate most of the educational sphere. It's like a recognition of that a middle space can exist between like, you know, standardized testing and like all of these like achievement metrics and like a deep inquiry based approach, right? Like finding a middle space uh, through a well-rounded education because you see so many of uh, our peers in the sector that are charter networks and also uh, schools across the United States that have uh, consolidated and consolidated and specialized and specialized like learning at even deeper and deeper and deeper levels rather than uh, taking more of like that expansive approach. And that's like why we are deeply aligned to like the International Baccalaureate Program or an IB World School. And, you know, we, we deeply believe in that type of classical liberal arts education. Materially, what it means for our students is that uh, we're providing them with options um, in an integrated, diverse context where they are continuing to outperform like their peers within the district uh, that they and city and state uh, that are uh, scoring uh, significantly higher than the, the national benchmarks on the SAT in terms of math and ELA that are attending college at uh, much, much higher rates than the national average, particularly for underrepresented populations, and also are giving back to their communities and are contributing to their communities, right? So it's like really like trying to figure out ways to like, how do we measure that success overall? Um, you know, and that's, I think, the question that we have is that, you know, it's always typically quantified, but like, what does that happiness mean uh, for our kids longitudinally? But we, and we really deeply want to 
to probe on that and to provide spaces of inquiry to make um, you know alternate pathways of success really viable in the in the larger narrative. So those pathways are interesting, and schools will quite often talk about pillars and pathways and and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, three pillars of the prospect schools. Diversity, world-class academics, and excellent teaching. Yeah, they, they sound really, really good, don't they? How do you? Yeah, how do you, you know, they, they, they just they just register on all sorts of levels as, you know, as you said, it's 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 perfectly attuned to that that sort of bridging between um, the classical liberal education and the sort of competitive world of that is the reality of, of your context. How do you make sure? that those lovely words aren't just lovely on a wall or a website. How do you make sure yeah. that they're lived in the daily warp and weft of life at one of your schools? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I think that that's, uh, that's the most important thing, right? Like uh, words without actions or like data or like evidence to back up uh, those approaches um, really fall short of that larger mission. So I'll go through some of these pillars and how they're actually uh, manifesting themselves in our schools. So the first one in terms of diversity, uh, you know, as a charter school and the charter system in New York, we have the ability to utilize a lottery system uh, that uh, provides an opportunity for individuals to uh, attend the school uh, regardless of where they're lo geographically located within the city. We have used, the, we have structural mechanisms that we've used to help um, increase that diversity across our schools. So specifically, we have lottery preferences and strategic recruitment practices to ensure that our schools uh, have no racial or ethnic minority, right, a majority, sorry, uh, that we have balanced numbers of students who are not and who are also economically disadvantaged, right? And we have a range of different abilities in terms of exceptionalities for students who uh, are special needs, uh, to a varying degree of home language that are represented across our organization. So, 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 so there's, a, there's a, yeah, yeah. So there's a balanced social structure that's coming at intake level, which is ensuring that yeah. there's no power imbalances going on. Right, right, exactly. And then what we do is that you have the ability to create a weighted lottery where you can put preferences for uh, particular categories. And so one of those preferences is for economically disadvantaged students, right? Okay. So yeah, yeah. we can yeah, put yeah. in there, yeah, we can put in there a weighted mechanism to ensure that that type of population exists. Uh, you know, I think pillar two in terms of world-class academics, you know, I think that goes back to like our liberal arts focused uh, education, like K through 12, we uh, try to seek uh, alignment back from some of like the seminal uh, IB course principles and also the IB learner profile traits. Um, and that manifests itself into the range of offerings that we have across our school. You know, everything from arts to world languages, uh, to uh, the DP core, to the personal projects, all of those have, uh, you know, key moments and seminal experiences across uh, the K through 12 spectrum. And it, it manifests itself through also like social emotional learning through like our advisory program and our restorative justice system across our schools. Fantastic. And then and I guess the- Excellent teaching, yes, go. yes. No, I was gonna say, let's get on yeah. to excellent yeah. teaching. Yeah, yeah excellent right. teaching. So, you know, that we believe that like excellent teachers are like the single most important factor in a student success. I think that's corroborated in the research that the number one influencer in terms of student outcomes is like really maintaining uh, 
our, our, the teacher core and a tight teacher core. And we do that through uh, making sure that we are recruiting highly you know, skilled individuals for, for their fields, and we're also treating them like professionals, right? Uh, you know, there's a number of different uh, organizations and educational entities that have like gone to a lot more uh, of a decrease to uh, teacher autonomy and agency in the space, whether it be over curriculum, over all of these different pieces. And what we do is we try to set like clear spaces for innovation and agency at the point of service so that like educators can really make the decisions that, uh, you know, respond to the data or if they need to do want to do this project or they want to like really explore uh, this type of uh, experiential learning that they have the agency to do that in the support of their school leaders. And, you know, I think that we have a different value proposition oftentimes in the sector. Like we have, you know, an, educators from our organization very rarely leave our organization and go to one of the major charter networks in New York City, like the Uncommons, KIPS, Achievement First. We ask oftentimes are the, the site where individuals who have been in those types of contexts, uh, you know, cut their teeth, uh, end up like teaching at, you know, and we really value and try and professionalize educators in that process through our recruitment, um, through the way that we, you know, uh, really try to emphasize agency and, uh, you know, the development, their developments as well, really trying to professionalize it and to treat, hold up teachers. So then if excellent teaching is an essential and if, you know, innovation is important, yeah. how many of your teachers on a regular basis are taking up that opportunity to create, to innovate, and what do you do to support them when, they, when they've come up with that idea? Yeah, you know, I think that this is a, a combination of creating spaces and moments where innovation is celebrated and also, you know, working with school leaders and training school leaders to uh, seek out those types of opportunities for instructional improvement. So what we do specifically around fostering spaces of innovation is that, you know, our principals have uh, different types of forums, different types of mechanisms that uh, educators can make proposals for either school-wide initiatives, can take up the mantle to lead uh, different types of organizational initiatives, and to really be supported not only from a resource and time perspective, but actually through the implementation. And I think that that's like really where all of our developmental systems across the organization really function is we have very specific tracks of professional development. Uh, for our educators and different programs and cohorts that they can be a part of to push things like personal projects for uh, school or community or organizational improvement, whether it be around leading uh, race equity and inclusion groups and working groups across the organization or uh, leading efforts around like college placement or, you know, really collaborating across the spaces and helping one another uh, improve practice. So I think that, you know, what we really try to do is really strategically plan out those spaces, build out those cohorts and have leaders across the organization who are help facilitating uh, like innovation within a content, innovation within a school and uh, innovation across the organization uh, more broadly. You know, and I think that's like the hard piece of it is, is that we also want to make sure um, that we're staying true to our vision and mission, you know, and it's like always a delicate balancing act. And I think that like this time period of COVID-19 uh, really has brought out a lot of that amazing entrepreneurial and innovative spirit uh, of our staff and our faculty and educators' families as we've transitioned to remote learning. And um, they've really 
been empowered to make those types of decisions and innovate with platforms to deliver a continuity of learning that is just uh, quite remarkable across the organization. It's interesting that you mentioned there the word innovation and of course then you just touched upon the current pandemic that the world is uh, crippled by and that is uh, COVID-19. We're beginning to see in not only education but in health, in employment, in the economy, large-scale change happening at a pace that we've never seen before. Yeah. And brought upon by this virus in many ways. That those industries that I just mentioned or those areas that I just mentioned uh, have been screaming out for reform, for reimagining for quite some time, yet we've just kind of lagged behind, and particularly in education. Most people in education remain, you know, kind of conventional and conservative around what it should be. I mean, you even touched upon earlier uh, even how your organisation still has to play within the framework of standardised testing and, and uh, you know, those, those, the parameters of, of, of a system that's imposed upon us in many ways. We're starting yeah. to see here in Australia an emergence of what Phil and I have coined as continuous learning, and that is this beautiful blend of leveraging up from the strength of face-to-face as well as, of course, this notion of online learning and how the two of them can coexist to really personalise the learning experience for each young person in, in their care. And, and early signs so far here in Australia, now that we're, we're in this scenario of this remote learning or the home campus or whatever, is that uh, teachers are commenting on the engagement level of their students being far yeah. superior in this environment than what they've had previously. Now, it might be because it's novel, it might be because uh, students are feeling the stress and the anxiety of the situation because they're so remote from, from the physical nature of engaging with their teachers. But real learning is happening. I'm yeah. interested in your perspective about what you believe schooling or learning may become post the pandemic. Yeah, that's a very, I really appreciate like that framing. That's really interesting also, how also Australia is, is processing this moment in time. You know, it's, uh, it's so difficult to, to know what the ultimate learning will be, you know, and I think it's varied and I think it's complex and I think that's, that's beautiful in so many ways. Um, you know, I, I think that what I, what, to your point about engagement, I, I will talk about that for a second before I talk about the future of education is, you know, it's, I think that there's been like this really interesting moment that has happened uh, in this push towards modernism uh, across across the globe uh, that hasn't really been absorbed completely in the educational sphere. And it's like a real real understanding of what um, the actual engagement with academics looks like for generations as it's happening slowly over time. And what I mean specifically is, is that like there is so much that has been discounted about uh, you know, the buzzwords of personalized learning and blended learning and computer-based, you know, adaptive learning uh, that have been so normalized into our culture that I think that we've missed uh, a unique opportunity that we're really uncovering right now, where people are saying, hey, you know, rather than being adversarial with uh, the parallel growth of technology that uh, that is how people communicate, how people uh, collaborate, in this it, currently, you know, in, in their jobs, in the real world, and applying that to the institution of education are not mutually exclusive ends, right? That there, again, there's like that middle space where uh, there are so many practices that when structured 
um, when attending to the conventional forms of, of communication that people are utilizing, that people are more likely to also feel like that they can be a part of it, right? Because like, uh, and, and I think it's so powerful, right? It is that like, you've seen, uh, you, to your point on engagement, you, we've actually seen oftentimes our online engagement, particularly during the first few weeks, has been higher than our attendance rate of wow. physicality in person, right? And, you know, the question to your point earlier is like, yeah, we have to be cautious about the fact is that is it novel? Is it just something that people are really, you know, just really trying to feel more connected? Or is there something inherent about like this transition and shift in behavior and thinking that has also propelled new energy into the life of what education can be? Right. You know, I think that, you know, we in America have really been fighting this existential battle with some things like the Carnegie unit, where in high school that your credit in a class is based upon seat time, which is based upon numbers of year, which is based upon hours rather than a mastery of content. Right. Mm -hmm. This moment has taken us uh, out of that element of like the notion of time, the notion of location the notion of what it means to learn and really forced us to uh, really re-examine uh, human potential in like really powerful ways. Uh, so I hope that like what well, one thing that we really take from this experience is that we need to uh, really break down that teacher-student dichotomy. We need to really push uh, like more of a collaborative learning space because the educational sphere in remote learning has given this bi-directional world where we have teach, uh, students who are teaching teachers and vice versa in the most organic and real ways, whether it be the deployment of a technology of using um, digital literacy in this way, which they've been, which students are using constantly in how they communicate. Yeah, I really love that. It's really interesting what you say there. Uh, I was I was reading an article here in one of our newspapers, and it was written by one of our uh, leading principals here in Melbourne. And she was talking about the fact that when her students at the school, it's an all-girls school, when the students were uh, connecting with their teachers through Zoom or whatever whatever structure that they're using, uh, the first thing that occurred was the student asked the teacher how they were. And what's interesting about that is that we often mm -hmm. demonise young people as if they're socially disconnected because they're always on their devices and all those all these type of this noise that we hear about this particular generation yet what we're witnessing is uh empathy and understanding and patience in spades and, th and these are wonderful and an important kind of traits and I, and I think these are kind of traits that when i've read everything about the prospect schools and the work that you you have successfully been doing with the young people in your care so much at the heart of what you're doing is not only about their story and amplifying their individual story. But you're definitely amplifying the opportunity for them to feel that they're known, to feel that they're loved, and then to feel that they're valued. And for me, so much of what the future of learning really needs to emphasize is exactly those kind of human elements and the best parts of what schooling does. And, and that is about the social exchange of lifting people up, not pulling them down, and allowing each person to move from engagement to empowerment where they're taking ownership yeah. of and that agency and, and, and hence why we're really interested in the work that you're, you're currently doing. I want to I go down the path of this remote learning a little bit and the online scenario. There, yeah. there are lots of statistics that 
what this has shown us also from a from a deficit scenario is that it's raised the digital divide that you know 60% of the, the global population is currently online so there's a substantial amount of young people who yeah. don't have necessarily access to to information knowledge and even just simple care and well-being through that kind of remote world yeah. now that classes have made that transition in, in your community, which students are losing out, which young people are losing out, and, and what, what do you think that that type of impact shift is going to have on those young people? Yeah, you know, I, I, the equity question, I think, is one that uh, was one of our key guiding principles when we were planning to move into this phase, was that one of them was that we wanted to limit complexity. Yeah. Uh, two is that we wanted to, like, really um, ensure that uh, whatever decisions were made in terms of, like, learning in terms of uh, what online learning might look like is that it can't, was grounded in equity, understanding that, uh, in a, especially in a diverse by design organization where 56% of, you know, the student population is uh, non, is more affluent, and then 46%, or 44% is uh, economically disadvantaged, that the conditions of uh, home access to internet, access to learning uh, were not equal, right, across spaces. You know, I think that that was the initial thinking. And, you know, we had all the structures that we designed, uh, you know, whether it be a laptop distribution and our technology team has just been uh, fantastic across the organization, like mobilizing smart phone devices uh, paired with our, our culture teams who are like uh, reaching out to families. Uh, across the different language spectrum and background spectrum to like see what were their needs as, as, as we move into this time period, how do we support you? Um, you know, and I think that, you know, all of those structural elements uh, chip away at, at, the, at the problem, but it is a system-wide problem, right? You know, and I think that there still is, uh, still are members of our school community and, uh, that uh, still struggle with access and it, and it becomes more than a question of the dynamic right, that exists in whatever sphere that they're learning in outside of the school building? Are they sharing a device with multiple family members? Uh, do they, are they just able to do it on a smartphone? Uh, is, do they have other obligations or family members that they have to take care of as well? And what I think it's really brought to our attention even more so is like the importance of understanding that we can never know another person's context especially at an unprecedented time. And we have to move through that space with empathy also for our educators who are, uh, have families who may be taking care of individuals who are now inviting uh, people into their home for live instructional moments who are also trying to carry about, you know, their basic needs of survival. And it becomes like this, you know, this, this balancing act of uh, how do we ensure that those who have are able to share and those who do not have access uh, are able to be supported because everybody is losing out right now, regardless of any type of demographic group. Everybody is losing out on learning. Everybody is losing out on the social connection in so many ways that makes us human. Uh, that one-on-one -on -one personal uh, interaction, uh, despite all the innovations. And it's important that if we recognize that, that um, you know, we continue to, we should have structures to really serve the individuals who um, are struggling across the board, uh, whether they be our, our adults or our students and families. So um, 
know, I know that that's a long end to your uh, question, Adriano, but, you know, it's just it's such, an, it's such an important question and one that I think everybody is grappling with who are facing equity Absolutely. I think I think one of the challenges within this, Jonathan, um, is that the, the nature of people who are drawn into education are never satisfied with less than 100%. So when yeah. people see any, any inequity, they want to they dive in to it, perhaps in a way that other sectors would be quite happy to sit there and go, well, you know, 80% is good enough, you know, 20% <laughs> missing out, you know. And, and yeah. for a teacher, you know, for a chalky, you just look at me horrified about that and think, you know, I'm interested in the personalised learning bit, if I, if, if I can return us to that. Because yeah, please. I think this is a really good example of it. And I, I can remember um, years ago, back, back, when, back, when, back when you were very, very young, and I was, I was, I was slightly less young and, and, and still teaching in the classroom, <laughs> and running, a, running a history department and so on, and doing some work with the University of New South Wales, gifted and talented program and Professor Merrick Gross, emphasising in particular that teachers in a mixed ability environment will inherently teach to the 19th decile. So that what, yeah. so that, that sense of compassion means that we pitch at the point of greatest need and yeah. therefore that we have to work on differentiation and personalization. If I can be so bold, I've been hearing people say for 25 years now, they've got a handle on technology and blended learning and <laughs> so on and so on. And you know what, we've just found out we didn't. We didn't have a handle on it. Yeah. We've got a much better handle on it now because we've jumped into it. I have the same feeling about personalized learning. I hear lots and lots yeah. of people talking about it. Uh, I'm, I'm pro I, I probably visit more schools than anybody else I know. Oh, it's probably been 100, 100 to 120 schools a year. I see not that much personalized le learning going on. If we talk about personalized learning is genuinely bespoke. Sometimes I see made to measure usually see, I see off the rack with some slight alter, uh, adjustments and alterations. Mm -hmm. what, are you, what, what are you doing within prospect schools to talk with people about an authentic narrative about personalized learning? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, I want to echo, uh, you know, a lot of the things that you're saying here about personalized learning, you know, and it's, it's so hard to, uh, you know, pull apart the what personal what personalized learning is when it's been so. There's all you know to Adriano's point earlier. There's so much noise uh, that exists uh, in the education sphere and buzzwords and lingo. Um, so I'll say that like from a personalized learning perspective, something that we do believe highly at Prospect Schools, and and because I, I don't want to claim that we are a personalized learning organization akin to uh, personalization of like just blended learning or hybrid learning in the classroom space, but it's like thoughtful integration of uh, different types of modalities of interaction with our students that meet their needs. And what I mean specifically around personalized learning is like, I I'm with you on like the research that says that like you put everybody in the classroom space, a heterogeneous classroom, people tend to either teach to the middle or, you know, teach to the bottom, right, in, in these types of situations. Uh, we believe deeply in heterogeneous grouping as much as possible because we don't want to track students as much as possible. But that doesn't mean that there aren't structural components that are differentiated throughout the day, whether it be small group instruction and tutoring or office hours uh, that really focuses on grouping kids in homogenous moments to get the remediation or acceleration uh, that they need. Um, you know, I think that what we've done, we've done embedded honors in our classes before, too, where we can still maintain heterogeneous spaces, uh, but have you know, moments of acceleration for students who uh, want to achieve more and more and want to continue, you know, 
um, to be pushed, right? Or that we want to push them, or they believe that they can push their families or advocates, whoever it be, whomever it be, uh, that they can also go on along their tracks. You know, and I think that, you know, the push to like that achievement score or the standardized testing or whatever it means in terms of an outcome uh, can only fully be realized uh, whenever we really try to meet students where they're at. And I think that like technology provides one strategic integration moment uh, that you can utilize something, uh, a tool, you can utilize a platform, you can utilize, uh, you know, blended learning to help meet those types of ends, right? Like it becomes like an extension of a really excellent teacher, an extension of their program to deepen, remediate, and to push instructional mastery forward. Um, so back to your point in terms of concreteness, like what can you do practically? Like we do have like those small group moments built in, structurally built into our schedule. We have those moments where people are, are, blend, are utilizing technology in personalized tracks, whether remediation or acceleration. Uh, we also have the thoughtful tier one interventions of using technology to like really meet a whole class digital literacy, you know, spectrum. Uh, so I don't want to like say that like, we by any means are a personalized learning school, um, but we do believe in personalization. And I think that that goes back to like that core principle of like social emotional learning and like what does it mean to be known uh, in our schools and to make sure that you have healthy relationships with your peers and, and your educators who are and teaching you each day. That's partly about resisting that temptation to make school a, a solely one-to-one -one experience and, yeah. and, and, and resisting that notion that my child is special because right. of, course, of course everybody's child is special and of course none of us are special. You know, it's, it's, we're, all, we're all part of a whole and, and we learn socially at the same time. So yeah. the notion that every bit would be different for every child. We've had the capacity to be doing that since online school yeah. was first invented in the late 1980s since Stanford you know, put it online school. Right. And we don't do that because we need schooling to be a social experience. We need, and, and we need community. Tell us, my, my, my last question for you is, tell us about the role of charter schools like the prospect schools within communities. What do they bring to the party for communities? Yeah, you know, I think that prospect schools specifically, I won't speak for all charter schools, but uh, prospect schools provides an opportunity for uh, an, an integration in terms of communities of students and the student population, and also a teacher population uh, that more closely mirrors uh, the demographic po composition of the district that you live in. Right now, there tends to be, um, especially in the two districts that were located in, in CSD 13 and CSD 15, uh, major hypersegregation in, in the, the traditional public school system. And you can even see like some of the efforts that New York City is making. These are also the two districts where the traditional public schools are starting to come up with integration plans because they realize that this type of inequity is not something that uh, is representative of the future and is not something that they want as representative to their communities, even though that there's a tremendous amount of feeling both ways, right? Like in theory, people want integrated schools, but then when it affects, uh, you know, my kid or my child, uh, and I don't want to move my kid, you know, just a couple of blocks down the street, does it become coded language for a desire not to move to a school that is not no, more balanced in terms of affluence, right? So I think that charter schools really provide a structural policy mechanism and an option and process schools specifically 
uh, for an integrated school experience in New York City and in a place that's as complex as New York City because there's a structural mechanism through the lottery system and then there's also a recruitment mechanism that allows for uh, greater representation of demographics across our schools that mirrors the communities that uh, students reside. As we uh, finish up this conversation, it has been uh, extremely rich and diverse and we really appreciate so much of your time uh, today, Jonathan. We're, we're learning so much about not only what the role of the prospect schools have in empowering a community to be better than they were yesterday, but we're learning so much about you. So I'm interested in you. What's your particular next challenge? What's on the horizon for, uh, for Jonathan going forward? You know, I think right now it's really uh, thinking about what does reintegration and recovery look like? Um, you know, I think that the greatest challenge right now is like we've gone through this phase of acclimation to this brand new world of, of, of COVID. Um, but what does reintegration look like in reentry? Because I think that like, moving to the remote world is a completely different thing than reentering uh, after uh, we've not been around one another for five, six months. In a, in, a, in a normal social institution with structure and setting. And social emotionally, what does that look like for adults and students? Um, and also what does recovery look like in terms of academics, right? Because you had mentioned earlier like this widening of the digital divide, right? Mm -hmm. How do we ensure that we're properly assessing the learning that happened during this time period, that we're providing pathways to support students to catch up who need to, uh, to also accelerate and to like maintain uh, some continuity in their experience that uh, finishes the unfinished learning and unfinished teaching that occurred. So I would say that this next uh, chapter is about what do those two phases look like of recovery and reintegration and recovery over next year? And how do we integrate the learnings that we had during this remote learning time period that, um, you know, has been challenging, but also can make us better. Yeah, if we don't, then, you know, I think we're in a, a difficult spot. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's um, a real privilege to um, share time with such a reflective educator who's thinking about the big picture, thinking about the little picture, thinking about how it all fits in together. And in particular, thinking about the service that a school and a, and a set of schools provide to its um, to the community around it. We wish you all the very best, um, and we just want to thank you for being a game changer who can inspire other game changers. Thank you so much, Phil. Thank you much, so much, Adriana. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you all today. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and supported by Circle, the Centre for Innovation, Research, Creativity and Leadership in Education. Go to www.circle.education. The podcast is hosted on SoundCloud. It's distributed through Spotify, Google Play and Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and tell your friends you like what you hear.